Do you feel like you're stuck in the job doldrums? We all know work can be better. If you believe there's a better way to work, join us in the global work forward movement now. Welcome to the Work Forward Podcast. Welcome to the Work Forward Podcast. Look, we all know this. Work can be better. Work Forward is not a company. We are a movement and a community of people through all walks of life that believe work can be much, much better. Look, here's the deal. Our daily goals and routines are painfully obvious and they're frustrating. We sit in unproductive meetings. We sit in needless obstacles that prevent us from actually moving forward with our work. Mm -hmm. And this is why we actually formed Work Forward. And this is the podcast to talk about work. What's up, y'all? I am Natalie Bourne. I'm an innovation facilitator, and I'm going to be joined today by three incredible people that are going to introduce themselves right now. Awesome. Hey, everyone. I'm Jeremy Verohob. I'm the lead strategist and a senior designer at Territory. Cool. I'm Suzanne Flam. I'm also a strategist and a facilitator at Territory. Awesome. I'm Sunny Brown, and I'm also a facilitator. I, I call myself a game facilitator, and I'm uh, currently focused on collaboration as a deep skill. Love that. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we have a really cool story that we're going to talk about today. If you've been listening along with us on the Work Forward podcast, you know this. We love to open with a story. So Jeremy's going to take it away. Yeah. So in the second episode of our podcast, the last one that we recorded, we talked a lot about selling by fear and greed. And we're it's kind of at the corporate level, how the drive to keep stock high and to hit growth goals every quarter can really hurt a business in the long term. And maybe more importantly, hurt, hurt the culture surrounding the business, both mm -hmm. internally and externally. Mm -hmm. And that conversation made me think about a kind of workplace fear that's much closer to home for me. A million years ago, and it really was about a million years ago when I first started working, I, I worked for a pretty terrible supervisor. None of us were clear on what would make him happy. And he was unhappy pretty often. Mm -hmm. the, that randomness, the inability to understand what success looked like was terrible. Yeah. It changed the way we cared ourselves at the office. And I think you, you probably all have experienced this. Mostly it just squashed any innovation or creativity. Everyone kept their head down. Everyone was busy protecting themselves from his wrath. And that mm -hmm. made it impossible to collaborate, to improve, to do the kinds of things that actually move work forward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's been a long time since then. And I work in companies that have the opposite kind of experience as well, where joy is kind of the, the centerpiece of the, what, the, what the work itself actually is. Mm -hmm. But I'll never forget. I mean, I still carry a piece of that with me. And there are moments in my working life when I still feel a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. there, something will happen and it will trigger a thing in me. And it's, it does like a fight or flight response. Like, am I going to be okay? Oh. And so my, my first question for the three of you is, have you had an experience like this? And if you have, what was it like? What'd you learn? It sounds like an alcoholic parent. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> just to break that down when you when you don't know what the expectations are and someone can switch a, on a dime then you're walking around on quicksand so i'm just acknowledging that that's not only a work problem that's just a tribal familial cultural human problem you know that's real oh my gosh yeah. that's that's real i mean anywhere where anger abounds or abuse abounds it's mm -hmm. you feel that that need to walk on eggshells i yeah. I had a situation where, yeah, I mean, I've I've had I've had some amazing bosses in my life and I've had some really rough ones. I can remember one in particular. We will not name the name of the company. Um, God, I but, kind of want you to. I know, right? <laughs> Just know. so we can help Warning, them. warning. <laughs> Let's help them. <laughs> but you know, what was so interesting about that experience was it was very, it was very triggering. Yeah. You 
hated coming to work because mm-hmm. you didn't know if they were going to throw you under the bus. You didn't know oh. what side of this, you know, the situation you were going to get. And so it was one of those things where you realized that their insecurities became something that leaked onto you. Yeah. And then you were now having to carry that in addition to your workload. And so there is something there. I think, Jeremy, as you were talking about that story where when leaders don't develop themselves and when mm-hmm. they don't really press into their own issues and insecurities and get them solved, mm-hmm. that leaks onto the rest of the organization and it creates chaos and it creates a an untenable work situation. So right. And it's so hard as the recipient, we'll say, victim mm-hmm. in some cases, mm-hmm. to actually have the presence in a workplace, especially where we think that we have some sort of boundaries of behavior, mm-hmm. to then realize, oh, wow, I'm actually receiving abuse. Like you described, yeah. someone, like, like yeah. an abusive personal relationship where in some ways we're actually like a little bit more trained to know like, this is something that can happen. Alcoholism is a thing, but Mm -hmm. we assume that that gets checked at the door, but it never, you know, all of your baggage. It's normally me. Yeah. I call it junk, but yeah, all your junk could just come, comes with you. Yeah. So then as an employee, like, wow, to be able, you know, there's a lot of tools for mindfulness and presence that we could bring Mm-hmm. to that scenario. And ultimately it is, it is an abusive relationship. Yeah. That's what, the, that's what sort of, I'm, I'm not seeing that in the context I'm in, but I'm seeing that where people have power to influence what, and that in itself is fundamentally a, a question that's important, right? Cause even if you have all those, all the, that skill set and that training, and you understand, even if you have boundaries and you have clarity around what you're witnessing and you're not being gaslit to the point where you're doubting your own reality and so forth, you still have a power dynamic that you may or may not feel like you can navigate. So, you know, I've been external on purpose forever. Cause, cause I, I don't want to skirt that stuff, you know? And so now for the first time I'm experiencing like organizational, you know, in a meaningful way, organizational dynamics as an in, more of an insider. And, and I find myself feeling really protective of people and I find myself wanting to train them and how to take care of themselves and also acknowledging where that, where they don't actually have influence and power. I mean, wh- what do you do with that? So it's just an interesting inquiry, you know, an important one. Yeah. I mean, how much of this, you know, you guys have both danced around it, but let's call, let's like put the elephant in the middle of the floor and paint it red. Mm-hmm. This idea of power distance, like how does that actually show up at work and how does that actually impact us as leaders or people that are being led? Like that's a real thing that you guys are, are dancing around, but how does it actually flex its muscles in the way that we show up to work when there's this massive power distance between us and our boss? And then on top of that, they're treating us a certain way. Mm-hmm. So I, I could just lean in a little bit. Like, I don't know the language power distance, but I think I get the concept. So there's a there's a training called right use of power that I was trained in, but um, also am very much still activating. And so partly the responsibility is on the, on the leadership <laughs> that they need to understand that there is a power differential and that they, they are also in that relationship with you. So when they're oblivious to that or when they are abusive of it, or when they um, conveniently change how they approach it, that's fundamentally disruptive for the person who, who's in what they call in that training, the down power position. Mm-hmm. And so and, and so I don't have the answers, but I think the, the question has got to be asked for a whole lot of reasons. And I also think there's times when that when you have to recognize that a system is not only dysfunctional, it is in fact pathological. And for me, once I recognize that the system I'm in is not receptive to information or change, then I won't stay. And that's a luxury that I have because 
because again, like there's certain sort of uh, places that I've protected myself as an entrepreneur because I'm not an internal person. So I, so I'm also really curious about how, what y'all have seen, how people do protect themselves or take care of themselves when there's not a, an exit strategy or when there's not a system um, flex, the system can't flex, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about that. In a, in a personal experience as well, I've mostly been external all of my career, sort of for similar reasons, right. maybe subconsciously. <laughs> you don't want to be but, trapped, you know? Yeah. It, yeah. It's it probably some deep-seated, you know, past mm-hmm. life, whatever. Same. Yeah. Unpack that in another one. <laughs> um, but I I was remembering that one of the lessons for me was when people show themselves, show you who they are, yeah. trust that they have. Like, take- <laughs> You know, and, and especially once it happens a few times, yeah, that, that you're, it's not going to change. And for me personally, I've had to learn to quit faster. Uh Quitting is not an option for everybody. So to that point, I think it's about allyship, you know, finding, Mm -hmm. finding the allies, finding the, the informal ombudsman inside the organization Mm -hmm. for sort of the emotional support. It might not change things tactically, but to be able, just like you would in, in a personal relationship, if you were mm. feeling attacked, you know, you would you would fortify yourself mm. to manage that. And honestly, I would start updating your LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. If, it, if it's pathological, which I agree, it's very common, right? You know, culture flows down from the top often. Yes. And if you're not in the, in the, how did you describe, I love that language you use power down power versus with yeah. power or yeah. top power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if you recognize you're in a down power position, mm-hmm. just assessing that quickly, I think, you know, and being really honest yes. about it, but then also assessing where, what's my, yeah, I like the language of, um, uh, spheres of control, right? Like mm-hmm. I do have control over my day to day, over my emotional health, over the people that I do interact with. Mm-hmm let's make sure that that's really strong. And then do I have another layer out that I have influence over? Is there anyone else that I can pull into my situation for the benefit of myself and others, but then recognizing where that sphere of influence ends and mm-hmm. potentially and what your tolerance mean. threshold is, you mm-hmm. know, because some yeah. people are much more sensitive to kind of egregious behavior and other mm-hmm. people, it kind of rolls off them. I wish I were the latter. I'm so, so sensitive. So I'm not that person, but Jeremy, you were going to say something. Cause I feel, I'm, I feel like this is connecting back to your story. Mm-hmm. I, 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 there's just a couple of things that I heard from y'all that I want to reflect on that I think are important to keep in mind. And and I'm glad that we're in a space where we're talking about sort of the emotional state that we're in from this, because it is such an emotional experience to be in those difficult spaces, particularly mm-hmm. when you're down power. But there's a couple of things that I think are important. One of them is, Sonny, you, you, uh, you talked about sort of understanding the power structures of the place where you are. And mm-hmm. I think that's a thing that, that's a, that's a learned skill. That's a thing. That can, there, there are ways you can learn how to do that so, so that you can start to map action and the second thing I want to talk about is influence versus power. And, mm-hmm. and, and Suzanne, you talked about that as well, a little bit as well. And so I want to, I want to dig into that a little bit also. And I think mapping, understanding both influence and power structures and, and mm-hmm. just having a, that picture is very mm-hmm. often enough enlightenment to sort of know this is unchangeable. This is a thing that can be changed. It's mm-hmm. there's the one person that's creating this chaos for the rest of us yeah, to lead yeah. into our space. It's coming from the top down. So it'll never change in this organization because that person, this, this organization is run by and owned by this person. Mm-hmm. And that kind of understanding, I think is a pretty important. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of the, I want to grab onto some pragmatic handles in this space mm-hmm. because it's so hard. And that's one of them is like, just understand mm-hmm. but the other thing, you know, that word influence is so important to me. And I, I've, I've worked with a lot of people who are 
power hungry. Yeah. And, and, and I've, and when I have chances to mentor those people or just being and mentoring, sometimes peer to peer mentoring, where I'm also receiving from them, I'm not mm-hmm. talking, I'm not thinking of myself as above them, but when I have a chance to sort of speak into those people's lives, I, one of the things I'll tell them always is cultivate influence. Don't worry much less about power and power matters mm-hmm. because power can be a kind of a gatekeeper on and off switch, mm-hmm. but organizations move on influence mm-hmm. and change happens because of influence. And mm-hmm. there are in almost every organization where I work, there are people in that organization who have very little power and significant amounts of influence. Mm-hmm. And those are the people that I always feel like I want to sort of sidle up to and become close to because they're, I want to understand how they did that. And I also know that if I want to pull a lever to see a change happen in a place, they might be the first person that I go to to, to, to initiate that kind of change, right? Oh, that's really what you're saying about initiating the change is I think an important factor. And so let's say we can't quit. Not everybody has the luxury of just walking out. I know at one time in my life, I was a single mom, so I couldn't just quit, right? It was like, it was all on me. (laughs) So I remember in this season, having some really hard conversations. I once had a boss ask me to lie. Mm-hmm. We literally got on a phone call with with another um, you know group in the organization. We talked through this change. They said, absolutely, we need you to stand down. This is what's going to happen. This is the way we need it to happen. Here are all the reasons why. Mm-hmm. She said, yes, 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 yes. Hung up the phone, looked at me and said, you'll go around him. And it was one of those things where I was reporting, like she was my boss's boss. Mm-hmm. So she was pretty far up the chain. She'd been there for years. It was one of those things where I'd just gotten there. I'd been on the scene six months. <laughs> She's there, you know, 10, 15 years. And it was, it was clear that, you know, how was I going to, to kind of go toe to toe with that? So it was one of those things where I left that room and I, I went home that night and was like, this isn't me. Like, Mm -hmm. even if I get fired, Mm -hmm. this isn't me. Mm -hmm. So I went back the next day. I went to my boss, which was not her. She was my boss's boss. And I said, hey, I need to talk to you about something I'm really concerned about. And he started laughing. He said, did she... are you, are you saying she asked you to lie? Like almost like he didn't believe it. And I straight faced was like, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And he's like, Oh, (laughs) like it was that moment of like, okay, we're not, this isn't a joke. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're coming to me because you're concerned. And he confronted her on it and her behavior towards me got worse. And eventually I ended up, I ended up leaving, but it was one of those kind of stake in the ground moments of like, I can either continue to have a really bad experience here and do some things that are going to make me feel super shady about myself later, Mm -hmm. or we can do, we can do the hard conversation now. And ultimately that's probably going to lead to your exit, but it would be better than not being able to sleep at night. See, but that's because you have an ethical compass apparently. Uh And that's not true for everybody. You know what I mean? Like to Jeremy's point, there's the power hungry. And and I know you like pragmatic. So I was going to just add, there's like in my, in the right use of power training, there's role power, there's status power, and there's personal power. And those things are very different, but the power hungry don't always have an ethical compass that they even yeah. use to gauge whether or not their behavior will even impact their perception of themselves. And that just freaks me out, I have to say. And this is a whole other philosophical conversation I know we don't have time for, but I think there's something important to be asked. And I think, Jeremy, your story was pointing to it, which is that are these systems fundamentally unethical? Like these systems of organizational capitalistic systems, are they fundamentally unethical by virtue of what they value? I'm like seriously sitting with that question because I don't, I'm not internal. So I'm I'm like so many learning curves and I'm looking at it. I'm like, can 
I even be an ethical practitioner in this kind of system? I don't actually know, you know, and the right system, I think you can, but, but I think you're, you're leaning into a very difficult argument here, which is how do we know from the outside looking in, which of these systems desire to be ethical, which ones don't. And sometimes you, it's only when you get in the bowels of the ship that you actually start to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Jeremy, you said you have experienced cultures that validated or prioritized joyful, like you, you tell, tell a story about that system, would you, or what were you going to say? No, I mean, I, I, I'm happy to talk about the places where I have worked, none of them perfect, but the places where I've worked, where it's, where we've been on the other side of that curve and I work in one of them now, they are places that prioritize humanity. They, mm-hmm. they think of work as a human experience. Mm-hmm. They prioritize the person, the people that are, that you're working with highly. Mm-hmm. They uh, prioritize and put systems in place to create space for transparency so that mm-hmm. even when things are difficult, people tend to know and, mm-hmm. and, and conversations about what's difficult are okay. Mm-hmm. They tend to, um, they tend to embrace and enjoy failure as a, as an opportunity to learn and improve as opposed to a, just something that means that you're not good or things aren't going well, or the organization is going to fail. Mm-hmm. So they tend to fail forward. And, uh, you know, all of that is, I feel a, a little funny talking about that because all of that feels kind of like ideal it's idealized. And, and again, none of that's perfect. I can think of examples in the mm-hmm. last week when, when even the place, even, even the experiences that I've had have not always been perfect versions of that. Mm-hmm. But I think when you point the magnetic North that your compass is pointing mm-hmm. to is that, mm-hmm. and you talk about it openly and you, you uh, make mistakes and then come back to the path. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and as, and I think, I think that's, that's another piece of sort of pragmatic advice I'd give to any organization that wants to get more like that is you have to, you have to not stop talking about that stuff. Yeah. Like what makes us work well together? That meta conversation has to be part of your practice as an organization and whether it's quarterly or monthly or even weekly, just having a chance to go, how are, how's everyone doing? Are we, are we, are we who we say we are? Mm. Um, I think makes a big difference. I think it makes a huge difference. Oh my God. What do you think, Suzanne? Yeah, that work never ends. And I think I was also thinking about trying to help help leaders in this situation, which I, I believe that there's leadership at every part of the organization. I'm sure you all are with me on that. And in that up power dynamic, yeah. there's so much that they have control over. Are we having those monthly check-ins? When an employee says, hey, I want to check in about the culture, it's not the same as the CEO, the founder saying, we're having an offsite once a month or you know, a two-hour meeting, whatever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be long. You know, there's power in in a five minute check in. There's power in the way that you start a meeting every time. And I see so often that idealism at the start, right? You know, we're founding a company with a manifesto about people and the human centeredness of this, da da da. And you know, two years in, and then they get venture funded or whatever. We all know the millions of transitions that can occur. And it reminds me that one of the the experience I've had multiple times is the founder syndrome. The I can do everything. I founded, therefore I can build, therefore I can run, therefore I can sell, you know, therefore I can manage. But we all have different roles. And, and I'm lucky as a someone who's made myself a contractor that I get to be in, mostly I get to be in control of the role that I want to play each day. But if you're founding a company, I think a lot of people forget that that is a particular skill set that lends itself to that audacious moment. Mm. And, and it takes a little bit of crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> to, to believe that that you can launch this thing that's never existed before. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that audacity comes with some some power hungriness mm-hmm. that is that can be toxic later. Not mm-hmm. always, 
But I think it takes a strong level of self-awareness to know, okay, we're past the phase where my audacity is what's getting us started. And now we're in the phase where that audacity actually could be dangerous and could mean that I'm stepping on people, that I'm hurting people. And then those are the moments where it's time to time to check in. Mm-hmm. Am I the right person at this moment? I'm yeah. a big fan of boards for helping people do that. Mm-hmm. So let's think about our listener who might be saying right now, gosh, you guys are describing an environment that I've kind of been living through where there is a lot of toxicity. I would love to just go around the horn and just in a couple, you know, three, four sentences, what's, if that was you, (laughs) um, obviously you guys, a lot of you have chosen to be on the, on the outside as a contractor, not in this large corporation, but where would you start? Like, what's one thing if you could say, Hey, I know you can't leave right now, but what's one thing you could do to be super proactive or productive in a toxic situation? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, my first inclination is around discernment. So, because for me, there's so much texture and nuance inside of systems and people who are, in fact, little microsystems. So, discernment first, right? Like, like where is the, you know, and I'm also sometimes careful to use toxicity or pathology as language because a lot of times, like I, you know, somebody could name that my behavior was quote toxic just because I was in a bad mood and mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't resourced. And so I acted kind of crappily. So I'm also just very, just as a human being, I try, I really try, I work very hard to make sure that I'm not, I'm not having a distortion in my perception. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's typically my first thing. But then if I do discern, in fact, that there is a deeply dysfunctional situation that I'm in that is going to cause me harm and will cause harm to many other people potentially and is not flexible, then I do try to affirm and validate that reality. So Mm -hmm. I I check my experience with others. Like, is this only happening to me? Is this also Mm -hmm. happening to you? So I start just gathering data you know, and information. And then I do start getting real creative about how to approach all kinds of things. Cause you have to map your passion and your value and your contribution that you can make. Right. Yeah. And then weigh it against the cost of being in that system. So it's just complex. I guess what I'm really saying is it's complex and I don't have a, a strong recommendation other, other than discernment and alliances with people that you know care about you, actually care about you. And then and getting real creative about exit strategies. <laughs> yeah. As you yeah. know, it, like it, like incrementally and and, and mm-hmm. to give yourself a safety net because you have to at least believe, like physiologically and mentally and emotionally and psychologically, you have to at least believe that there is a way out for you. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's 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 that's painful, really, really painful. Yeah. And there's no hope. Yeah. There's no hope, hope if you don't believe oh, there's a way if out. It's like a year down the road, but you're yeah. not trapped and it's not, you're not gonna corrode you know, cause mm-hmm. that is just awful to be there. Yeah. yeah I think that, that reminder yeah. that you do have choice, even in what seems like an impossible situation mm-hmm. where yes. your paycheck is non-negotiable mm-hmm. in a thousand ways, you do have options. You do have choices. You know, I would say this in a personal relationship as well as a business relationship, you have choices. Mm-hmm. It might be hard to see them in the moment. Yeah. And that's why that building alliances, validating one's experience, I think helps maybe move you out of the sort of adrenal response that mm-hmm. makes logic go out the window. Mm-hmm. So fortifying yourself with emotional support, mental, physical support, so that you can then look clearly and start to assess what your choices really are. And also one small tactical tip is to write things down. 
Yeah. If you are doubting, start writing it down. And then in a week or three weeks, you see, oh, there have been a, there is a pattern. pattern, Exactly. Mm -hmm. For yourself. And also potentially if that is needed in discussion with others. Mm -hmm. It's really good. Mm -hmm. Jeremy. I just want to reiterate, actually, I just want to, I want to underline some things that I I heard that I think are, if I had started, I would have said these things. So this, that was, it's really nice to have some alignment. I, I think it's really, it was really wise for you all to make the connection between like toxic home experiences, toxic sort of personal life experiences and toxic work experiences. And and I want to just draw on, I think there's a ton of wisdom in recovery programs. Yeah. And in particular, that very first step of just acknowledging that there's really a problem. I have a problem. And yeah, Houston, that, there's and, a problem. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then that, and then, which is sort of a little bit of what you're talking about in terms of like, find, like document this thing for yourself mm-hmm. and start to really understand it. And then, and then also in a, in, in a standard sort of recovery program, another thing that you do is you start to reckon with what you can control and what's out of your control. And you try to stop worrying about the stuff you can't control and only mm-hmm. focus on the stuff that you can control. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that wisdom to know the difference is, yeah. is a very, very difficult piece of work, but maybe, maybe one of the most important ones. Mm-hmm. And, and then the other thing that I'd say, and this is, this is me tapping into, I, I think Sonny, you said, you talked about your passion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think as you think about your long-term, particularly if you're a young person in a situation like this, as you think about your long-term, I think you, I think you should be asking yourself, what's the thing that makes me tick? What's the work that ma- that makes me feel vibrant and alive? Yeah. Um, and not everyone can has the luxury to find that space, but I think we, again, similarly, we should point ourselves in that direction, even if mm-hmm. we can never quite get there. Mm-hmm. And, and reckoning with what, with like, what do I actually, what is the stuff that when I'm finished, I actually feel more energized and not less energized, or I'm exhausted, but I feel great. I feel like mm-hmm. I've, you know, I feel like a, a million bucks mm-hmm. that like pointing yourself in the direction of, of getting to that stuff and owning that that stuff is good for you. And maybe most importantly, recognizing that working in that kind of space is probably better for everyone else too. Like when you are, when you are working in your passion, it's actually better for the world. It's not just good for you. It's like, this. Yeah, it's, it's not like just a, for you. a multi, it has a multiplicative effect. Mm-hmm. And and I think understanding what that is and looking and pointing yourself in that direction is a, is important. Mm-hmm. Well, so all right. I love it. Well, the banging ensues overhead. So sorry if you can hear that, but <laughs> we're going to close out this segment. And so I want to encourage our listeners. If you are intrigued by this conversation, I would love for, you to follow us, you can head over to We Work Forward. You can also find us at weworkforward.co. And of course, check up us out on YouTube, the Work Forward podcast. Uh, we will have more episodes to come and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining our Work Forward community. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, follow us on LinkedIn, and visit us at workforward.co. Okay, now that we're out, Jeremy, I thought you had a question. Yeah, I just I just want to know if you guys have any any thoughts about why manholes the whole world <laughs> are actually round. Why are manholes round? I'm gonna let Suzanne guess. I, sh- I was are gonna guess uh, round. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> but also, doesn't water flow through round pipes? What would be the alternative? Is a question I'd also like to discuss. <laughs> Triangle. Well, they tested all those. They tested they? them all. Yeah. I thought it was because we are round. Like that was going to be my answer too, especially like when you put your, you know, hands over your head, you go in straight down because you're round. And if it was triangle, we might get stuck. Like, I feel like my love handles would get stuck halfway in (laughs) if it was like triangle. Like wedged in a corner. Right. Do you want me to do the big reveal or no? Please do. Please tell us why. And I could be wrong, but this is what I learned when I was a kid. 
that so they did test all that they tested hexagons and octagons and triangles and squares and like manhole covers were super super heavy right so they didn't want it to be able to drop through the hole so a circle is the only shape right that when you because a triangle you can turn it and you can drop it in you can turn it different angles but a circle was the most safe in terms of the dropping and it's I about remember, the cover <laughs> yeah the it's, false is question true? is that true <laughs> about the hole is that true that's, that's, that's absolutely correct. That, that I thought so too. I was like, circle is the only shape that can't fall into its own hole. Uh, yeah, and, and even an oval can because you can turn it and then that's it right down the wide way. So it has to be perfectly round. But you know anyway. what's crazy, Jeremy? The reason y'all are gonna know my true nerd, nerd inner nerd. When I was a kid, I, my mom told me that, and so I was like, oh, that's incredible. So then I started proceeding to like prototype the stuff. So I took a can of like Campbell's soup, and then I like cut it out with a can opener, and then I dropped it through the hole, and I was like, whatever. But the truth was, because it, you know, it had it cut out enough space where it could drop through. But like the fact that you asked that question, Natalie, <laughs> is embarrassing because I'm like, oh god, I was such a nerd when I was a kid. Like I remember and care about stuff like that. <laughs> I love that you knew that. All right, guys. Well, we are officially out. Have a that great was day. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, awesome. See you later. Thank you. <laughs> Today's sponsorship is brought to you by Territory Global. We work at the intersection of experience and imagination. We help you pinpoint problems and turn them into opportunities. We make imagine happen. Some of the best organizations in the world choose us as their partner to help solve their strategy, innovation, transformation, story, and ways of working problems. Learn more at Territory.co.